I appreciate that, like our church, y'all saved the front rows for latecomers. That's really great. <laughs> Everyone faces trials in life. Everyone goes through trouble. Everyone experiences tragedies. Now, some of us may feel like you've not yet been through that much suffering, and if that is you, you can thank God for that. But you can also know that difficulties will come. Trials come to everyone in this life. But as God's people, we can have hope and confidence in the midst of life's challenges because they're brought into our life by one who loves us. They are ordained by one who protects us. The Lord is not distant from us in our troubles. The Lord is present in our troubles. And so whatever comes to us in this life, we need not fear because the Lord is our keeper. We can have peace in the midst of trouble because the Lord is our keeper. Please turn in your Bible to the book of Isaiah, if you would. This morning we're studying Isaiah 40 and 41. Isaiah is right about the middle of your Bible. If you're a little far left of center, you might hit Psalms or Proverbs or Song of Songs, Ecclesiastes. If you're a little too far to the right, you might hit Jeremiah or Lamentations, Isaiah chapter 40. And for the moment, we're just going to read verses 1 and 2. Isaiah 40, beginning in verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Let's pray together and then we'll look at our text. Father, it is a joy to gather together with your people, to sing praise to you, to pray to you, to proclaim your truth. And Father, I ask that you would help us right now as we study your word together, that you would open our hearts and minds that the Spirit would apply these truths to our hearts. That you would help me to teach in a way that is right and true, that is consistent with your word and your will. And that the Spirit would take your word and accomplish your work in us. Father, we ask for those that are with us this morning who do not know you, that you would open their hearts, that you would grant them life, you would help them to see that you are a God who saves through your Son, Jesus Christ. And Father, we ask that you would help each one of us to grow more into the image of Christ, that we would become more like him. Father, I pray for this church family. I ask that you would give them unity, give them love for one another, help them to draw together, encourage them in the trials that they face, strengthen them, be with them, and Father, may we all leave this place encouraged and strengthened for your glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today's text represents a bit of a shocking transition from what comes before it in Isaiah. Um, Isaiah lays out God's accusations against Israel uh, for their sin against God. Uh, both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom had turned after God to serve idols uh, at times, Judah, the southern kingdom, repented, but 
often they turned right back away from God again. And so there have been warnings of judgment, of discipline. There have been national disasters and invasions and so on. There have been calls to repent. There have been further warnings of God's judgment and discipline. God has compared his people to Sodom and Gomorrah. He has called Jerusalem a prostitute. He has announced he's rejected his people. The Lord is contending against his own people. God proclaims woe to the wicked. In every text where there is hope and promise, there is also judgment. In the chapters immediately before today's text, King Sennacherib of Assyria invaded Judah. He made it all the way to Jerusalem before turning back. So judgment is very present in their world. But even with the judgment, despite the judgment, sin is continuing. In Isaiah 39, just a chapter back, Hezekiah was showing off his wealth and the glory of God's temple to foreigners. And so leading up to today's text, the consistent pattern has been sin and judgment. Uh, Some hope, some redemption to be sure, but largely sin and judgment. And we might expect that today's text would likewise begin with judgment, with God's wrath against sin. But instead, today's text begins with God's promise of comfort. Uh, God is commissioning his divine counsel to bring comfort to his people. And it is not that there will be no more judgment of any kind, but the entire focus has changed to comfort. It's like switching movies from a horror movie to an animated classic, from Jaws to Finding Nemo. The change is so shocking, not just in today's text, but for the rest of the book, that Many scholars believe these chapters have a new author or authors. Well, perhaps a better way of thinking of this sudden transition is not that we've changed movies, but that we've jumped from the middle of the story to the end of the story. We've moved from the fire swamp and the rodents of unusual size to the rescue of the princess from the evil prince. It's actually the same movie. You just jumped from the drama to the resolution. Now, it might have been jarring for God's people to see such a sudden transition, but it's no problem for God. God says, my counsel will stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. The future is as certain for God as the things that have already passed. God's providence extends over all things. He really is in control. There are no details that do not fit into God's plan. Every moment in life is part of God's master portrait. Every moment is part of God's design. In our text, we're going to see that the Lord is our keeper. And we'll see that in two two ways, two key themes. First, God comforts our hearts. Second, God calms our fears. God comforts our hearts and God calms our fears. First key theme, God comforts our hearts. Verse 1, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. So Judah has been devastated, invaded, overwhelmed, but it will end. Warfare will not last forever. Trouble will not last forever. God will bring sorrow and suffering to a certain And trials and tribulations will one day cease. God comforts his people. God sent the judgments, 
God sent the discipline. It is God who had ordained these things. As God told Sennacherib back in Isaiah 37, uh, God determined the greatness of Assyria. God empowered that empire to crush fortified cities. God knew beforehand what Sennacherib would do. God knew that Sennacherib would rage against God, and therefore God would punish Sennacherib in the end after he had finished accomplishing God's purposes. In the same way, in our text, God is the one who has brought the trouble on his own people. But in Judah's case, God brought that trouble for her own good. God brought the judgment, but now her warfare is ended. Now her iniquity has been pardoned. God will no longer judge her for her sin. It is doubly covered. God has forgiven sin. God comforts his people. God comforts us in our sorrow. God comforts our hearts. Look down to verse 3. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God is comforting his people. God has dealt with their sin and now God is going to show up in person. The idea of verses 3 through 5 is that the whole land is being prepared for God's arrival. The land is being prepared for the great king to appear. Uh, we want the path, the, the pathway to be perfect for the great king. We want it to be straight without any turns. We want it to be flat. The, the valleys are elevated. The mountains are lowered. Not a single uneven step as the king enters. After all, the way is not being prepared for just any king. The way is being prepared for the king of kings, the lord of lords. Everything must be prepared for the arrival of the king. And then the Lord shall appear. Verse 5, the glory of the Lord will be revealed. Everyone will see it because the Lord has spoken. He has determined it. He has declared it. God comforts his people, then God reveals his glory to his people. God's majesty, his grandeur will be made known. Next we see that our lives are short, but the word of God stands forever. In verses 6 and 7, we're reminded of our frailty. We are reminded of the shortness of our lives and the timeline of human history. Our lives are barely a blip. But there is something that stands the test of time. Verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You and I will not last forever. Our word will not stand forever. Our purposes will not all come to pass. We are finite and our lives are brief. But God is infinite and eternal. God has declared the end from the beginning. From ancient times, things not yet done. The purpose of the Lord will stand. God's word will stand firm. It will stand forever. No purpose of God will be thwarted. All that God has declared will most certainly come to pass. Now pause and just consider the hope that that brings us. 
yes, we face trials and trauma. Yes, we experience trouble and tribulation, but they are not the end. Comfort is the end. Joy is the end. Peace is the end. Forgiveness is the end, given to us by the one who controls all things for all time. The trouble that we face is temporal. The comfort that God gives is eternal. God comforts our hearts. And we can know that his comfort is the final word. His peace is the final word. We will most certainly enter into God's rest. Our word, our purposes may fail, but the word of God stands forever. Verses 9 through 31 highlight that God's greatness and his loving kindness are our hope. God's greatness and his loving kindness are our hope. God's eternality, God's power, these ensure that God is able to accomplish what he purposes. God's loving kindness, his tender mercy, these ensure that God has purposed only what is good for his children. Verses 9 through 11 are the beginning of this proclamation. Go to the high mountain where nothing can obstruct the message. God sends good news. Behold your God. Verse 10, the God of power and might, the God who brings his reward. Consider the greatness of God's power. But also, verse 11, consider God's tender care, like a shepherd with his flock. God gathers his children like a shepherd gathers the lambs in his arms, gently caring for those in the greatest need. Verse 12, who who can pick up the waters of the seas in his hands to measure them? Who can determine the volume of all the earth's dust? Who can pick up the mountains to determine their weight? Or if the mountains are too large, who can pick up the hills? Only God could do such things. Verses 13 and 14, who, who makes recommendations to God? Where does God go when he needs counsel? Who teaches God wisdom or justice or understanding? Verse 15, if you have a bucket of water, of how much concern is one drop? If you're weighing something, do you worry if there's an extra grain of dust on the scale? The nations are such a small thing for God. Verse 16, Lebanon, the the land of forests, doesn't have enough wood for God's fire. It doesn't have enough animals for God's sacrifice. Verse 17, you put all the nations together and they are as nothing compared to God, less than nothing, as emptiness. Like the significance of planet Earth compared to the vast depths of space. A spot so tiny that our Earth wouldn't represent a single pixel in a picture of our galaxy, which wouldn't represent a single pixel in a picture of all the galaxies that God spoke and created by his word. So, verse 18, to whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? Who can you compare to God? What can you compare to God? An idol? An image of gold or silver made by human hands? You think that little piece of metal is like God? 
that worthless chunk of gold is supposed to represent the greatness of God? Verse 21 highlights how incomplete, how inadequate is our knowledge. Do you not know? Haven't you heard? Didn't you hear at the beginning? Don't you remember from when the earth was founded? You were there, right? Haven't you heard and known these things from centuries and millennia ago? It reminds of God's speech to Job. We just don't have the wisdom or the knowledge to tell God how his universe should be ordered. Verse 22, to God, the earth is just a thing he looks down upon. All the people of the earth are like grasshoppers to God, just tiny little bugs moving around. To God, the sky is just something that he stretched out, just a small thing. Think about that the next time you're out on a hill or in the middle of nowhere and you look around at the vast expanse of the sky and know it's just a small thing that God stretched out in his leisure time. Even the rulers of nations are just part of God's plan. Verse 23, he brings them to nothing. The greatest ruler in the world, the most powerful king, God sets them up. God allows them to rule. Then God sends them on their way as nothing. They're barely even set up before their reign ends. Their time is nothing before God. Verse 25, to whom then will you compare me? that I should be like him, says the Holy One. There is nothing and no one that can compare to God. Verse 26, consider the stars. Now, we cannot even begin to fathom the number of stars in the universe. The very darkest parts of the night sky contain so many galaxies that we cannot even begin to count. God created those stars. God knows each of them by name. He calls them out for us to see. One never goes missing because of the power of God. Verse 27 through 31 really bring all of this home. Verse 27, how how could you say that God does not know what's going on in your life? How could you believe that God does not know what is good and right and just for you? Do you think God doesn't know all of it? If God does not lose the stars that we can't even begin to count, do you think God will lose you? That he has misplaced your case file, that he's not sure what's best next. Verse 28, God is everlasting and eternal. He created all that exists He never needs to sleep. He never needs a break. Nothing separates God from his purpose. Nothing distracts God from his design. People get tired. Even young people with their seemingly boundless energy still eventually crash and sleep. Even peak athletes experience exhaustion. But not God. God provides energy and strength that is inexhaustible. And God never lacks anything he needs to accomplish his plan. But why in this context is God reminding his people of his greatness, of his inexhaustible strength, of his glory and majesty, his omnipotence, 
that he controls creation. Haven't his people already seen that in his judgment? Why remind them now? God's people need to know that God is really able to deliver. God is really able to save. God really has the power and the authority and the wisdom to accomplish his purpose. The God who comforts his people is the God who created the universe. The God who comforts his people is the God who controls all things. The God who comforts his people is the God who calls out the stars by name. The God who comforts his people is the God who sees all the nations like a drop in the bucket, like the weight of a dust on a scale. God is infinitely greater than anything, and he can accomplish his purpose. God's judgment against his people has ended. God's grace is poured out. Now God comforts his people. If God declares that we can find comfort, then we can most certainly find comfort. Nothing can overcome God's purpose. Nothing can harm us outside of God's plan. The end of whatever we face will be for our good. God comforts our hearts because his purpose in everything is good. And so when the trauma of the trial is past, the goodness of God's work becomes clear. The sun rises, the sunlight breaks through the clouds, and God's glory and goodness are unveiled. Before we move on to chapter 41, I just want us to note how God has already fulfilled his promise, at least in part. If you look back to verses 3 through 5, when we first read these verses, we might be thinking of the literal creation of highways in the desert. We might be thinking of some cosmic unveiling of God's glory that causes the whole world to fall down in worship. But the way Scripture tells us this prophecy is fulfilled is in the coming of God's Son. Luke's Gospel tells us that the ministry of John the Baptist was fulfilling these words of Isaiah to prepare the way of the Lord. John the Baptist came and prepared the way for Jesus, and God revealed his glory through Jesus. In Jesus, God's glory is unveiled. His sinless life, his substitutionary death, his sacrifice on the cross, those unveil God's glory to the world. And we know... We know that not everyone acknowledges God's glory in Jesus Christ, but nevertheless, his glory has been revealed. And there will be a day when everyone will see God's glory and judgment in a way that no one can deny. As the Apostle Paul says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the glory, of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The promises we see are promises for those who are in Christ Jesus. For those who have seen the glory of God in the face 
of Jesus Christ. God promises comfort because God works all things for good. God comforts our hearts. Do you need comfort this morning? Do you need the comfort that only God can give? God gives and he gives and he gives again. God comforts our hearts. Second key theme, God calms our fears. God calms our fears. The God who comforts our hearts also calms our fears. Chapter 41 sets up a contrast between the peoples around Israel and Israel itself. A contrast between those who trust in false gods and idols and those who trust in the living God. The world has reason to fear. Those who oppose God have reason to fear because their gods are no gods at all. Because the Lord God is the true God. But God's people have no reason to fear. Because God himself is the one who helps us. Three times in chapter 41, God tells his people to fear not. And each time, God tells his people not to fear because he will help them. God helps his people, and therefore we have no reason to fear. If God is for us, who could be against us? If God is for us, what could overcome us? God calms our fears. Look at 41, 1 through 4. Uh, The coastlands are mentioned in verse 1. And again in verse 5, it's a way of speaking of the nations to the west of Israel and Judah. Uh, They've been dealing with the same uh, invasion by Assyria as the people of Israel. They're, They're suffering in much the same way as the people of Judah. But there is a difference that God highlights in this chapter. Uh, the so-called gods of the Assyrians, uh, they weren't, sorry, or the coastlands, they were not able to anticipate the Assyrians. Uh, they were not able to fight the Assyrians. On the other hand, God not only called the Assyrians in, God also sent them away. In verse 1, God calls for these nations and their gods to gather for judgment. Uh, he says, let's consider who's the real God. Let's consider who you should trust. Verse 2, who stirred up from the east the one who is always victorious, the one who tramples kings, the predator who pursues and certainly captures his prey? Who did that? Verse 4, the Lord is the one who has done this. The Lord established this powerful nation from the east. The Lord brought them in to accomplish his judgment. In verses 5 through 7, these unbelieving peoples from the coastlands fear that they gather together in their fear. They, they call to each other to be strong. Verse 7, the idol makers band together. They make the best possible idol. I don't know what the best possible idol is, but that's what they gather together to do, to make the best idol. They nail the idols in place so that they cannot be moved. And then they say, now our gods will truly protect us now that we have ensured that they're safe. The people band together to create the idols, to secure the idols, and then hope that now the idols are going to save us. It is folly. It is madness. In verse 8, God stops speaking to the surrounding nations and their idols, and now he speaks to his own people. Verse 8, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, 
You who I took from the ends of the earth and called from the farthest corners, saying to you, You are my servant, I have chosen you, and not cast you off. I'm sorry, I need a Kleenex. Is there a Kleenex up here? I don't think there is. Anyone have a, anything? Sorry about that, I meant to grab one. I'll just wait a second. <clears throat> What we see here is that the strength of God's people comes from God himself. The strength of God's people comes from God himself. Verse 8, God has chosen his people, the children of Abraham. God has called his people from around the earth. God has not cast off his people, and he will not cast off his people. And then we get to verse 10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Back in verses 5 through 7, we see the neighboring people had to strengthen and help their idols. They had to uphold their idols, they had to nail them in place. God needs no help. God's people are safe with him because he is the one who helps. God is with his people, God strengthens his people, God helps his people. God upholds his people with his righteous right hand. And therefore, we have no need to fear. God calms our fears for he is with us and helps us and strengthens us. God calms our fears. In verses 11 through 13, no one can harm you because God is the one who helps you. The people who are angry with you will be put to shame. God will stop those who fight against his people. In fact, when God's people try to defend themselves, they won't even be able to find their opponents. They have vanished away. They've become as nothing at all. Now, how can those who oppose God's people simply go away? Why are they so inconsequential? Verse 13. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. God defends us, God fights for us, God helps us. We have no need to fear, for God is our helper. God calms our fears because we need fear nothing besides him. In verses 14 through 16, we see one more command to fear not. Verse 14, fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel, I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. God's people must not fear. Yes, fear is a natural response to trouble, but we must not let that fear overcome us. We must put away the fear, and God himself calms our fears. God reminds us that he is the one who helps us. God fights our battles for us. No harm can come to us unless God has willed it. Because the Holy One of Israel is our Redeemer. Verses 17 through 20 continue to demonstrate demonstrate why we need not fear. The Lord provides for us. God provides where there is no provision. He brings rivers of water in a dry and weary land. 
God turns the wilderness into a flourishing forest. And the Lord does these things, verse 20, so that his people will see and know. So that his people will understand that the Holy One of Israel is working for good. So that we would glory in him, so that we would rejoice in him, so that we would delight in him, so that we would be satisfied in him, so that we would release our fears to him. God calms our fears. Verses 21 through 29 represent a final standoff between God and the idols of the nearby nations. God asks the idols to make their case that they are really gods. All right, guys, why don't you all show some evidence? Verse 22, why don't you all make some prophecies? Or maybe tell us some of the prophecies that you made in the past that have now come true. Verse 23, tell us what's coming next. And then we'll know that you're God, since, you know, you could determine the future. God's conclusion, verse 24, (coughs) you are nothing. Your work is less than nothing. Those who follow you are an abomination. And then God reminds of what he's done in the beginning of verse 25. God called someone from the north, and he came. God called someone from the east, and he obeyed. Verse 26, none of you, you false gods and idols, none of you made declarations beforehand. Verse 27, but God made promises and he has kept them. Verse 28, none of the idols can answer God. None of the false gods are able to give counsel. Which brings God to his conclusion in verse 29, idols are all a delusion. They cannot act They cannot give counsel. They cannot in any way bring about change. Idols are just empty wind. Such false gods and idols are useless. They cannot help you. But Christian, we do not follow after false gods and idols. We serve the living God. We trust in the Holy One of Israel the eternal one, the one who never tires or grows weary, our shelter and defense, and so we need not fear. God calms our fears, for he is our rock. Do you have fears this morning? What is the thing that you fear? Or who is the person that you fear? Is God not greater than your fear? Is God not able to overcome the trouble that you face? Or, perhaps, do you doubt that God's solution to your trouble is actually good? It's not that you question that God's in control of the situation. You're just not sure that God's purpose is actually what you think is best. Maybe God hasn't really thought through all of the implications for your life. God calms our fears because he is in control, and he calms our fears because he is good. God acts with loving kindness to his children. God tends his flock like a shepherd. God gathers us in his arms like little lambs. 
God carries us. God gently leads us. Trust in God in the face of your fears. Know that God's purpose in your situation is greater than whatever you fear. And let God calm your fears. God comforts our hearts. God calms our fears. Because the Lord is our keeper. Let's pray together. God our Father, we deal with many challenges in this life. We face many sorrows, many trials, many tribulations. May we look to you for comfort. And Father, we ask that you would give us comfort. We know that you will. Be with us in our sorrows. And Father, we thank you that you also calm our fears. That there's no trouble that we face in this world that was not brought to us by your good hand. It's just as you've brought us into the trouble, we know that you'll bring us out and accomplish your eternal purpose in our lives. So may we rest in you, in your goodness, in your love and kindness. And know that you keep us. In Jesus' name, amen.